although it can be traced back to the late 1800s, the prosperity gospel dramatically rose in popularity and subsequent influence in the 1960s, 70s, and especially the 80s through what is known as televangelism or the public preaching broadcast through radio and television. The prosperity gospel is also known as the health and wealth gospel or the gospel of success. And it's named as such because of its core teaching, which is this. God's will for his followers is financial wealth and physical health. In fact, so much so that the word blessing for them became synonymous with financial success as according to them it was seen as God's favor. As such, every act of obedience revolved around this basic tenet. If you have more faith, if you give more money, God will increase your material wealth. Now we know none of this comes from the Scriptures. The reality of the Christian life as promised in the Scriptures is actually quite different. From Jesus telling the rich man in Matthew 19, in order to be complete or perfect, he must sell everything and give to the poor, to Paul telling Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And of course, we have our recent studies in James chapter 1 that tell us that joy and blessing come not from material wealth, but from humility and trials. The true prosperity gospel, then, is not about physical health and material wealth, but spiritual health and eternal wealth. And as he returns to the topic of trials, in our study of James chapter 1, James now explains this very reality to us. The reality of enduring trials, facing difficulty, but facing them in a biblical way as the true prosperity of believers, the true prosperity gospel. A gospel that has to do with our spiritual well-being and our eternal life and next to nothing to do with worldly comfort and riches. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Four benefits this morning. Four benefits of enduring trials. Four benefits of the Christian enduring trials. First, right along with our theme, is the prosperity. The prosperity. Look again at that first phrase of verse 12 where James writes, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Now we know that all of our sermons, all of our studies in the past few weeks have been in the broader context of trials. And it began back in verse 2 of James 1, 2 through 4, where he specifically mentions the trials. Let me read that for you. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is prosperity for the believer. Lacking in nothing. 
not physically, not materially, but spiritually, to be Christ-like, to be godly, to be a Christian. And now fast forward to verse 12. He now brings us back to trials and persevering. As a reminder, as we saw in verses 2 through 4, a trial, as he uses it in James here in the Greek, can be either external or internal. We conventionally think of a trial as something that's external, which is fitting here. External being some sort of outward pressure or external circumstance outside of you causing some sort of difficulty. So even something physically inside of you, like disease, we would consider an external trial. The internal one is also what James is talking about when talking about trials and applies here in verse 12. An internal trial is simply the temptation to sin for the believer. So you got external and internal. It covers all of these. And we understand that one often leads to the other. An external trial, an external difficulty can often lead you to be tempted to sin, to be angry, to steal, to lie, whatever it may be. And also we know from the scriptures that unrepentant sin can also lead to physical trials as the Lord disciplines us. So external and internal, often both. And the one who perseveres either of those, James says here in verse 12, is blessed. Now we have already seen in verses 2 through 4 the blessing for the believer of endurance because of spiritual growth. Now he adds another blessing from trials so long as we endure them in a godly way. Now to be clear, let's start with the word blessed or blessed. What does that mean? That's a very integral part of the Christian life. Being blessed by God, I am blessed, we are blessed, have a blessed day things like that. Blessed literally means to be happy. To be happy. As we see blessing addressed throughout the Bible, we understand that it's not just a worldly happiness. We look at it and we understand that there is a fuller meaning and an understanding of what this type of happiness entails. And because it means much more than happiness as we understand it right now, today in this world. In fact, the same word in the Greek is used to introduce every one of the Beatitudes, which we read earlier in our scripture reading. Blessed is the man, blessed is the man, blessed is the man. You could say happy, happy, happy. But we need to understand the biblical principles that are included with this kind of blessed happiness. What it should be understood as for us is joy and satisfaction that come from the Lord. And so when you hear that word or you read that word in the Scriptures, here in verse 12 of James 1, or especially in the Beatitudes, understand it's not just some sort of emotional happiness. It is a joy and a satisfaction that come from the Lord. And it's only when we understand this biblical principle of true happiness, joy, and satisfaction that we can actually make sense of verses like Psalm 1-1, which say, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, how truly happy and satisfied and joyful in the Lord is the man who does not partake of the things that are contrary to the Lord. 
when you look at Psalm 1-1 and look at an earthly definition of happiness, it's actually the opposite is true. You would be externally happy pursuing the material things, the comforts of the wicked and of the world. You see? But when we truly understand blessing and happiness and joy as joy and satisfaction in the Lord, then we understand we reject the ways of the world. We reject the ways of the wicked, the scoffer, the evil. And what we see in that word blessed or blessing or bless is a spiritual reality, not a material one. Now, we often associate material wealth as a blessing, not in the way that the prosperity gospel does. I'm not saying we only see blessing as stuff from the Lord, but we often use that uh, when we're talking in, in our thinking, right? Hey, I heard you got a raise. Yeah, I'm so blessed, right? Oh, man, I, I heard the medications work and, and you're totally healthy now. Yeah, what a blessing from the Lord. And that's true. That's good. It's not wrong to use blessed by the Lord in those situations, you see. They can be true so long as you recognize that that material wealth or that physical health is a gift from God. And it draws you into the joy and satisfaction in Him, not only in the health and the wealth, not just in the stuff. In other words, if God chooses to give you a lot physically, the true blessing is being just as happy and joyful and satisfied as if He didn't give you any of it. Because it's found in the Lord, not the stuff. The satisfaction is in, not in the gift, you see. The satisfaction is in the giver. And that's why we can go back and say, blessed is the man who endures or perseveres through trials. Because even when he puts difficulty in our lives, we can see that as joy and satisfaction in the Lord. You understand this. You understand the principle of being content, not grin and bear it, but content in any and all circumstances that the Lord has put you in. I look around this room and I know people who understand this very well as they are in this very moment in the midst of serious, serious physical illness. And yet to hear them, you wouldn't know it at all. Praising God, blessing God, worshiping God, desiring to be with God's people. You understand this. When we receive a present, maybe not from someone you expect a gift from, but maybe someone you haven't heard from in a long time, someone you didn't expect a present from. You don't even open the gift yet and you read the card and you go, oh, wow. Because it's not so much what's in that wrapping paper. It is the happiness you get from realizing that this person is thinking of you and went out of their way to give you a gift. It is a happiness that you find in the fact that the giver thought of you and gave you something. The gift is just a cherry on top. We don't throw away the card and just focus on the gift. And someone says, hey, who gave you that? I don't know. Threw away the card, didn't look at the label. Right? We, we look at the card first. We want to know who it's from. And we're overjoyed, not so much in the gift, 
but in the giver. It is the same way with God. Our joy is not found primarily in being able to eat or to buy that new car, but in recognizing the love and the grace and the thoughtfulness of the giver. And when we consider that, we understand that it doesn't matter what we get because the reality is is that He is gracious and merciful and giving and loving and thinking about us all the time to the point of sending His Son to be mercilessly brutalized on the cross for us. And so, in comparison to the Gospel, who cares? Who cares about health in comparison? Who cares about stuff? Who cares about a roof over our head? Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's the point. And it goes back to the character of God, which we'll see in a moment. And so this is the true prosperity. This is the true prosperity of the believer. Not what we have, but just the fact that God gives or even holds back according to His love and for our good. In the same way, we can wish someone have a blessed day. We say that a lot. And we can say that so long as it is our genuine desire and prayer that that person finds their joy and satisfaction in the Lord and not saying have a blessed day, meaning may this day be comfortable and filled with riches. Now we understand. When we say that, have a blessed day, it must be because as a fellow believer, our desire is that they would walk with the Lord regardless of their physical circumstances, in which case we understand there are probably much better ways to say that than have a blessed day. All that to say, true prosperity or blessing is not in the material or physical gift, but in the spiritual This in no way means disregard God's gifts to you and not be thankful. That's not what we're saying. But if you're just caught up down here in the stuff that He gives and not focusing on the giver, then you don't truly understand how prosperous you are, how truly spiritually and eternally wealthy you are. And so we understand the true prosperity gospel. It's not about stuff here. And in this case, James is speaking of blessing from a particular event. And it's not trials. It's the believer persevering under trials. That's key to understand. We don't grow spiritually just because we have trials. We grow spiritually because we take on that trial respond to that trial, persevere in that trial in a way that honors God. And the believer who perseveres is the one who never doubts God's goodness, never questions His sovereignty, doesn't stop trusting Him, which part of not trusting Him is turning to the world rather than Him for help and guidance. Or at least turning to other people who are going to give you worldly advice rather than godly advice, who are just going to buy you more stuff to make you worldly happy rather than give you biblical advice, perhaps even biblical rebuke, so that you will grow spiritually. And so, when we talk about perseverance, that's what it means. It does not mean 
to just wait it out till the trial is over. It means trusting in God's goodness. It means trusting in His sovereignty. It means looking to Him and to people who will turn you to Him. It is to patiently and triumphantly endure. Perseverance means not getting angry, not giving up, not just checking out and just waiting for the trial to end. This type of perseverance is resounding with hope, not resignation that passively waits for the difficulty to be over, and especially not responding in sin. As we saw back when we studied verse 2 of James 1, there is no particular kind of trial that James is pinpointing. He's talking about trials in general, whether they relate to physical health, finances, death, work, family, whatever it may be. And what we're talking about here is a blessing in the form of eternal reward. So although the end of the trial can seem like the blessing, we're so relieved that the trial is over that we think that is the blessing. No, that's not what James is talking about here. And we'll see what James is talking about at the end of the verse. But what's important for us here is to note that this blessing only comes for the one who has endured. Not just survived physically the trial, but one who has responded biblically. Because the reality is, the majority of us in this room will one day endure and hopefully persevere biblically a trial that we will not survive and will lead to our physical death and usher us into the presence of God. And so it's not just surviving a trial. It is enduring and persevering. And before we get to what this blessing, this reward entails, we must bring this back to God and salvation, God and the gospel, which brings us to our second benefit of enduring trials. That is the prerequisite. The prerequisite before we get the reward. In verse 12, as we continue, he says, For once he has been approved. Approved. This goes hand in hand with perseverance, but it's important to note that whether or not someone has truly endured a trial is a matter of the heart. This is what we're talking about here. And we understand that only God sees the heart. Thus, it is only God's approval that we can gain from proper endurance. Approved is how we use it today. Approved after testing. The idea of being tested and having the one in authority declare that you have passed the test. It is a stamp of approval, a passing grade, if you will. Now, the reason this is important is because what we're talking about here is all about God. God does the blessing and God gives the reward, but only God has approved. Only after God has said, you have passed this trial properly. See, enduring a trial such that you are approved by God, again, does not just mean that the trial is over, you have physically survived. God looks at the heart. So it does not mean that others see a smiling face. 
It doesn't mean that other people think that you're doing well or enduring the trial well because of your recitation of Christian cliches. Oh, God is sovereign. How are you doing? Oh, God is good. God knows. Not saying those things are wrong, but do they truly reflect what is in your heart? Because you could easily say those things to look good among other believers or try to be a good testimony to unbelievers while your heart is completely lacking a trust in God. Your heart is angry. Your heart is ready to go home and start blaming other people, getting revenge on whomever. And you say, but God is sovereign, trusting the Lord. And so what I'm saying here is that approval ultimately is what is going on in your heart and mind which God sees. Because approval means more than just what other people see. And what you are, the fact that you are able to muster up a smile or write kind words that are biblical. It means that what is in your heart is genuine belief that results in hope and trust. In other words, it means authentic Christianity. To be clear, God does not give you eternal life. God does not save you because you have endured under trial. This approval is not earning salvation because you have passed the test. Rather, what James is saying is that perseverance is evidence of pre-existing salvation and eternal life. In other words, if you are a true believer going into the trial, you will receive the stamp of approval because you will respond biblically. And we'll see in a moment why this is so important to understand when we see what the reward is. To put it another way, only the one who is already saved by grace will endure trials in a such a way that he or she will receive God's stamp of approval. And ultimately, being approved is based on what God has done in your life, which will result in your Christ-centered steadfastness in the midst of of difficulty. Here's the thing. We are not perfect. And if there's any a time in your life in which we're not perfect, and so those weaknesses and sins will come out. I want to be clear before we move on to the prize that I'm not saying that if there is a, a little bit of anger during a trial, a little bit of fear that all of a sudden that means you're not a believer. It definitely doesn't mean you've lost your salvation because that's impossible. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you can lose your salvation. The ramifications on the character of God, if that is true, are just indescribable. You might as well throw your Bible away if that were true because everything about God that you believe is not true. But... As with everything, we sin, we fail, we repent, we turn to God, and so it must be in trials. There must be more obedience and God-honoring thinking in your heart any day, including trials, for us to understand that truly I am saved. There is fruit that results from salvation as James will very clearly tell us later on in our study. And this is why the reward 
is one that is reserved for Christians. And we see this in our third benefit of enduring trials, the prize. The prize. Look back at the verse. Once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Again, he doesn't receive this because he has been saved, because he has endured a trial. He is already a believer. Now going to this phrase, the crown of life, a crown was a common reward given in the Greco-Roman world. Here, as, we, as you have probably seen elsewhere in the New Testament, the specific picture is that of the victor's crown in the context of athletics. This was not a crown as we would conventionally picture atop the head of royalty, but a wreath made of laurel, uh, which is a type of plant. And this was very popular in the infamous Greek games, one of which was the precursor to the modern Olympics. And like the gold medal given to the top contender in the modern Olympics today, the wreath was a symbol of triumph and victory, and it was placed on the head of the, what we would call the gold medal winner, the first place runner, or whatever sport he was competing in. It was, in fact, known as the victor's wreath. And you've probably seen it before, depicted in different places. There are uh, various signs with it, just a, a wreath that almost forms a, a full circle, usually, and just placed on the head of someone. I think even in some modern athletic competitions, they still keep that tradition in addition to a medal. Be that as it may, for the athlete, it was a physical symbol of their success. For the believer, the crown is more than just a symbol of an earthly victory. It is not just a crown, but the crown of life. To be clear, the victor's wreath was not called the crown of life. In the scriptures, the crown is added with that descriptor, crown of life, because it is talking about eternal life. The crown of life is talking about salvation. To put it another way, it is the crown that is life with God. This is salvation. And salvation, as you know, is connected to eternal life. You could say that the content of the crown is eternal life. And so, we understand that this crown, this prize, is not something physical that He gives us, but it, it is coming in the future as we enter eternity it is not something we receive today, so it can't be a material possession or even a promise of earthly, worldly health. Again, the prosperity of the true gospel is found ultimately in Christ, and it is fulfilled in its totality in the future. As 1 Peter 5.4 tells us, and when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus Christ, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's a synonym for the crown of life. So the focus here in 1 Peter 5 as well as James 1.12 is the end of the age. It's eternal life. Now we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. We have the promise of eternal life secured for us by the Holy Spirit. But we don't have it yet. We know we will get it. We don't have it yet because we are still in this temporal life, you understand. And remember that the context here in James 1 is enduring trials. And this helps us understand why James is writing this. He wants to encourage Christians, especially the 
original audience. Remember, they were undergoing severe persecution and severe poverty because of their newfound faith. These were mostly Jews who had converted to Christianity. And James simply wants to encourage them and in God's sovereignty to encourage all of us till the end of time, all Christians, not to give up and not to respond sinfully to trials so that we can get the reward that God has promised. And sometimes we can get confused between earthly treasure and heavenly treasure in the sense that they are both treasure. And the reason I bring this up is sometimes people ask, is it wrong to prioritize gaining heavenly eternal reward? Is that selfish for the Christian to do? Is that wrong? Because we understand that it's, it's selfish and sinful to only focus on that earthly reward here on earth earthly treasure. And so we translate that and say, well, then it's wrong to to want to focus on getting eternal reward. It is not wrong. And it's not wrong. I know this because all over the scriptures, the promise of heaven's reward is set before us as a motivation for our faithfulness to the Lord, especially in the midst of difficulties in this life. But the key in the phrase that I just spoke is faithfulness to the Lord. The reality is that our ultimate priority should be worship. In other words, God's glory. When you set eternal reward in your sights, you will include God's glory because what brings eternal reward is obedience that rejects the ways and temptations of this world. The only way you can truly set your sights on eternal reward is if you have God's glory in mind because that's how you get it. In other words, you cannot truly persevere with an eye toward heaven unless you are focused on the God of heaven. And in the same way, you cannot truly focus on reward in heaven unless you are focused on the God who promises that reward. Because think about it. If you had a choice, that's bad grammar. You have a choice. We have a choice every day that we want to spend our time and our energy, even right now in your heart and mind and how you are thinking and responding to the words coming out of my mouth, you have a choice to respond with an eye towards riches on this earth, which we saw the foolishness of last week, or riches in heaven. And in order to focus on riches in heaven, you've got to be focused on God. Because what good is it to focus on eternal reward if you don't really care about God or God's glory? Because eternal reward is all about God. It is a privilege and a prize that we will one day receive our reward and lay down our riches and crowns at the throne of God. See, as you see the difference, there's going to be a completely different heart attitude. It's not just, well, you know, I'm I'm not sure if I want to kind of put spiritual things aside and focus on amassing more here on earth. or You can't do that. The, The divide is so great that the whole theme of your life is either going to be pursuing God's glory and eternal reward or 
riches here on earth. And so, all that to say, to focus on reward in heaven is not wrong. It is good. It is biblical. Because someone can translate a worldly greed. Can, can someone translate a worldly greed into a selfish desire for greater treasure and eternity? Absolutely. Every good thing that we're called to do, every good thing that God gives us can be twisted by our sin. And you think about all the different religions in world history. They have indeed done that. They have turned their own sinful selfishness into this twisted pursuit of riches in heaven. 9-11, anyone? Things like that. Suicide bombers. Because they're promised... Well, I didn't need to tell you what they're promised. It's pretty bizarre. But you understand this. All over the world, throughout world history, people have pursued self-interest by doing these things. But for the true Christian, it can't happen. We have to understand the true reward, the ultimate purpose. And when we do that, even if we are dabbling with this form of weird, twisted greed, it will not last because our desire for God's glory will overtake it and sanctify it. This becomes immensely clear as we finish off the verse and see a description of the ones who get the crown of life. And this brings us to our fourth and final benefit of enduring trials, the promise. The promise. We've seen the prosperity, the prerequisite, the prize, and now the promise, which is connected to the prize. Look at the end of verse 12. Which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. The, pro the crown of life has been promised by God Himself. This is not a promise of some sort of representative or salesman who knocks on your door and has just been fed uh, some sort of script to read to you. He really has nothing to do with the final product. They just promise because their manager tells them the promise and the manager supervisor says the promise and somewhere down the line some CEO said, yeah, promise people this. No, it is God Himself who promises this reward and this promise can be made by God because He Himself has secured the reward by sending His Son to die on the cross for our sins and raised Him on the third day, ensuring that this victory and this promise of reward is actually true and will come to fruition. Ultimately, we trust in the fulfillment of the promise because of His unchanging and trustworthy character say you're going to go back to God's character again, that's everything. That's the basis and foundation of everything. Because it is in that character that the gospel was fulfilled in His love, His mercy, His grace, and His wrath exploded upon His Son rather than us. And I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 because we see all of these characteristics of God played out in Ephesians 2. Turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 2. Not that it is of any significance or importance to any of you, but those of you who have been around know that this is my favorite chapter in the Bible because it is a great reminder and lays out who we once were and then with that powerful but God tells us who we now are because of what Christ has done. It is a great reminder when we start getting cocky or arrogant about our faith to go back and remember who exactly we were. 
And remember, we're looking at the character of God, which ensures that we will receive the crown of life and the gospel, which entails his love, mercy, grace, and wrath. Ephesians 2, let's start in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil, by the way, and I want to point out again, he said you, not them, not some people, not the world, not people we can judge because they're unbelievers. You, this was you, this was me, this was all of us. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of, here it is, wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And there's another theme that we have seen in James 1 already, that it's all about God that we may not boast. It is because of this, what we have just read in Ephesians chapter 2, that we know that those who are saved will receive the crown of life as promised by God. We didn't read all of Ephesians chapter 2, but I can guarantee you he does not start by laying out the depravity of man, including what we once were, switch gears by saying, but God, and talk about who we are now in Christ, and then later on go, but if you do this, you will lose it all. No, he doesn't do that. Everything he says after the but God, ensures the promise of salvation, which will never be lost, never be tarnished, never be tainted, and we will receive the crown of life in eternal glory and eternal life. Nothing will change that if you are a true believer in Christ. It's important to understand that though God's character is consistent throughout all eternity and for all men, this promise is only for, back in James 1.12, those who love Him. You could say that it is because of God's consistent character that this promise is only for those who love Him. So who are those who love Him? This is not those who pursue a God. This is not those who are religious. It is those who, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, are saved by grace through faith. True believers. It is those who, according to Romans chapter 10, confessed with their mouth Jesus as Lord and believed in their heart that God raised Him from the dead. It is those who, 1 John 4.19, love because He first loved us. The, this description those who love Him, is found in the New Testament as a title for the godly. Listen to John 14, 15. Jesus says, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. 
1 Corinthians 16.22 If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. We understand that this is not just someone who has made a profession. This is not just someone who claims to be a Christian. True Christianity is someone who loves God. And that love is manifested through worship. Worship is manifested through obedience. And what James is saying is that those who are truly saved, those who truly love God, those who will receive the crown of life, are proven to be such because of their response to trials. Show them to be true followers of Jesus Christ. Ultimately then, because they are shown to be true believers, they will get the reward that has been promised to them, the reward of eternal life, the crown of life. Trials are difficult. Whether they are physical or emotional difficulties, whether they are inner temptations to disobedience or a combination of the two. By God's grace, we as believers have a connection with the one who is sovereign over all. And he is so good that he is willing to shape and grow his loved ones, even if it means bringing us physical or emotional pain. In the midst of those trials, we must be careful that we do not look to the world, not to their wisdom, not to their sources of comfort, not to their treasures, not to their methods, toxically speaking, of numbing the pain. By God's grace, we know better. May we not just survive our trials, but thrive through them. Like the one who understood more than any the suffering entailed in following and serving Christ, may we say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of life. He calls it the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. Four benefits of enduring trials. The prosperity the true prosperity, the prerequisite, the prize, and the prize followed by the promise. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Father, especially in the midst of trials, we are prone to weakness. We are prone to complain, to be discontent, to seek the things of the world, but we are thankful that by your grace we can endure in a way that honors you. And thank you that as true believers we are guaranteed and promised because of your character ensured 
the crown of life, eternal life, even before the trials ever begin. And in light of this, Lord, may we respond faithfully. Help us, Lord. Because in so many ways we are attached to the world. In your sovereign plan for us and our living out our testimony to you and your sovereign plan for the world and providing for a dark and dying world, salt and light in and through us, you have kept us here for the time being. And so the thinking of the world creeps into our minds. The necessities of surviving this world through material things is essential. But may we never look to those things as our reward. May we never look to those things as the solution. Guard us from looking at those things as the be-all, end-all. May we always look to the giver and not just stop by rejoicing at the gift. May we always look to you and worship you. May we respond to trials in a way that honors you, that we might be blessed with the assurance of eternal life. May we be blessed with perseverance and greater endurance as we become more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And until that day when you lay that crown upon us face to face in your presence, may we be faithful, Lord. May we endure, Lord. May we honor you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand as we close.